Hello. We're going to begin a new uh, lesson today. I'm going to go ahead and give you the title. It is a residue in our old life. That will be the title. The text comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Let's begin reading at verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanliness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, that the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So as I said earlier, we in today's lesson we're going to explore a new concept. And in this explore, exploration, it will require us to look very deeply into our hearts and determine if there is something there, some barrier there that hinders us in our faithful walk with God, in our progression toward our calling, and simply moving forward in relationship with God. Now, turning our eyes inward and truly scrutinizing our skill, ourselves objectively is usually not very enjoyable, let's be honest. When we do that, we often find that we have created emotional and mental mechanisms and put them in place to assist in the justification of the unpleasant things that we may find there. If we are honest, we usually give our hearts really only a cursory examination. You see, we know where to look and we also know where not to look. I remember someone sharing a story with me years ago and they, they, they told me about a discovery that they had made, unexpectedly made. They were getting ice from a, an ice machine that looked clean and well-maintained, and it was. Um, however, they opened the door, and as, as they scooped ice from the bin, they, for some reason, they looked further into the ice hopper, into a place which was normally hidden from direct observation. And what they found there was it was covered with mold. The machine was cleaned regularly, but this was a hidden area. It was a secret place that held an unhealthy residue. Now our minds, ladies and gentlemen, and our hearts at times can be like this if we are not vigilant in extricating old capacities for entertaining alternatives to God. There is the potential for us to retain a residue 
that escapes our casual notice. This, re this residual thing sits there, hidden from casual observation, quietly corrupting our lives. And the residue is usually composed of familiar things, things that we are comfortable with, things like ideas that were part of our lives, could be prejudices. This residue could be composed of the secret apparatus of our past sin-filled lives, those things that facilitated the sin that was part of our lives. We tell ourselves that those things are no longer active. That's what we tell ourselves. And they may not be, be an active part of our lives. We tell ourselves that they, that they no longer hold power over us. But for some reason, there remains a remnant that is not completely expunged. Some, some seed of that original bias or proclivity remains. It is the residue of an old life. The residue of an old path. This ghost of our past carnal mindset can remain much like I, I kind of picture it. It can remain like an old, unused road. There's grass coming up through the pavement and it's not maintained. It's no longer traveled, but it's still there. It still takes up some, some space in our mind. It remains perhaps because we haven't had the strength or the desire even to remove the last vestiges of that old, familiar, comfortable structure. Perhaps without realizing it, we retain that thing, that whatever that thing is, that remnant, as a fallback position or our contingency plan in case this walk with God becomes too difficult. There's many there's many things that it could be. You'll have to determine that on your own. A couple of examples could be this, this residue could be the affinity toward distraction. We were drawn to earthly amusements prior to our new birth and perhaps never set up disciplined spiritual parameters to prevent our hearts from wandering those old paths. This residue could also be the willingness to ingest or incorporate secular philosophies and worldly wisdom into our lives because those were the mental waters we swam in in our past. Now you'll notice I said the affinity toward distraction and the willingness to ingest. I, I'm not making the accusation of active sin. We all understand that we have the propensity to fail we also understand that we have a merciful God who is willing to forgive and willing to restore. He's proven that. I'm speaking of those things that for some reason or other, people choose to retain. They quietly 
retain these things. They put them at the back of their minds. Things that they have grown too comfortable with. Mindsets and values that are promoted by the culture, perhaps, that we live in. I think of the children of Israel as they journeyed toward the Promised Land. They were entering a into a new dimension of relationship with God. They had been separated from God for many generations. And the influences of Egypt were being removed and replaced with a new appreciation of Jehovah God. They witnessed the plagues. They were extricated from bondage by the powerful hand of God. They were witness to his strength when he opened the Red Sea and used that obstacle to destroy their enemy. He told them to stand still and watch and observe. As they journeyed across the desert, the the Lord was in the process of scrubbing away their inclination toward pagan idolatry. This this mindset, this, this willingness to serve some false god was something that they incorporated into their lives while they were in bondage. The willingness to accept alternatives to the one true God. You can read in Exodus chapter 32 of the residue of that corrupted mind causing the children of Israel to immediately turn to the worship and incorporation of spiritual fiction. Moses received the law on Mount Sinai and descended the mountain to witness a people worshiping a graven image. This occurred because even though the people had left Egypt, Egypt had not, had not left the people. There remained within them a residue that they would embrace once they encountered the unknown. They turned to that familiar thing, that thing that was that persisted in their minds instead of turning to God. In the subsequent chapters, we read of the renewal of covenant and specific instructions to a people prone to embracing the remnants of their past. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 10 through 13, we read this. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as has have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Verse 12 says, Take heed to yourselves, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break 
their sacred pillars and cut down their groves. The Lord reiterates his promise of help to Israel in verses 10 and 11. He gives them awesome promises. His power, he promises, will, will be on display on their behalves. But in the following two verses, he gives a stern warning and admonishment to his people. He warns them of becoming really too chummy with the, with the idolatrous inhabitants of the land of promise. He warns them of this because there is always the possibility for this world to influence God's people if they aren't careful and spiritually fit. There are really obvious similarities between this ancient account and our modern world, if you look at it. We live in a world that strives to appeal to carnality. We are surrounded by godlessness and are assaulted on every front by the strategies, the tactics, and the instruments of our adversary. We recognize this. We see it every day. It's, it's not even hidden anymore. There is obvious hostility toward people of faith, people who are grounded in relationship with God. The Jewish people were salvaged from a society and a, a place that embraced concepts that were antagonistic to God. They suffered under the harsh rule of a despotic, cruel Pharaoh, and yet there was something within them that remembered those old pagan pathways. They suffered physical abuse that manifested in broken, scarred, and weakened bodies. But they also suffered mental and spiritual abuse that manifested in the retention of destructive ideas and inclinations. When they were faced with uncertainty, they resorted to their old ways. That is why the Lord demanded that they distance themselves from the pagan cultures of Canaan. Those cultures would represent potential for a corrosive influence in the mind and community of God's chosen people. Israel was told to go simply to go beyond simply removing the offending societies. They were instructed to remove all remnants and residue of the ideas of those cultures. Verse 13 says, but you shall, but you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their groves. Remember verse, verses 10 and 11 explained what God would do. He said, I will do marvels, and, and there will be awesome things that I will do with you. And he said, I will drive out from among you those nations, those offending nations. But he said, you shall destroy their altars and break their sacred pillars and cut down their groves. The pagan idolatrous altars, sacred pillars, and groves represented the core of the threat 
to Israel. That was the real threat. The physical threat from those nations was easily eradicated by God, and he said that he would, but the spiritual threat, that had to be destroyed by the people of Israel. The Israelites had to make a choice. God would handle the physical threat, but he would not make them faithfully serve him. The residue of those pagan cultures had to be extinguished by the Israelites so that it would not infiltrate the minds of them or their future generations. Serving and living for God, serving and living for Jesus is a conscious decision. We understand that we are encompassed by a myriad of physical threats. We see it every day. But it is the ideas and the concepts of this world that want to stain our minds and burrow into the hidden parts of our souls that we have to be mindful of. Let's go back to verses 22 through 24 of our text in Ephesians. It says, Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. The Apostle Paul was writing to a church that was forged from a culture that was the epicenter of worship for most of the Greek and the Roman gods. They were surrounded by values and mentalities that at one time they shared. Paul was, Paul was explaining to this established church body that they had to continue the process of divesting themselves of the residue of their former lives. They could not rest they had to be vigilant. He was telling them that it was a process. This principle is echoed elsewhere in the Scripture. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, is a very familiar verse of Scripture. And it says, And be not conformed to this world. Be not conformed. He's giving a warning or admonishment because there is the capacity, there is the potential for us to conform to this world if we are not careful. But be ye transformed by the renewing every day of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul is basically saying, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. There is no place for even a residue of our old life. We cannot have even a remnant of it within us. This scripture written to the church in Rome that was ethnically diverse, it was suffering due to tension associated with the ingrained cultural concepts that existed in that church body. There was that old remnant of their past that was causing friction and tension 
between the Jews and the Gentiles. They had to allow the Spirit of God to scrub away that divisive residual mentality so that there would be a there would be health within the body. We cannot harbor or entertain the tainted elements of our former lives or this world without the threat of those corrosive elements growing and alienating us from God. The children of Israel in Exodus were warned not to allow any remnant of the ethos or spiritual character of those pagan nations to linger. This was a practical instruction. It was given by God because He knows the potential influence and appeal of carnal ideas in human society. If you study the history of Israel, you will discover that they did not eradicate those centers of pagan influence from their land. They coexisted with cultures that began to inform their spiritual character. There is no coexistence that should have existed or could have existed if they were to remain close to God. The residue left among the land degraded the vibrancy and vitality of Israel's connection to God. There was a perpetual spiritual malaise that existed within the divided nation of Israel and Judah due to their willingness to entertain that residue in their lives, to turn to it. Let me give you a few examples. In Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 31 through 33, it says, And Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah. He was 30 and 5. This is a summary of Jehoshaphat's reign. He was 30 and 5 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 20 and 5 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shilhi. And he walked in the way of Asa his father, and departed not from it, doing that which was right in the sight of the Lord. How be it, or however, the high places were not taken away, for as yet the people had not prepared their hearts unto the God of their fathers. Jehoshaphat was a man who witnessed the magnificent power of God expressed on behalf of Judah due to the physical threat posed by the armies of Ammon, Moab, and of Mount Seir. He stood along with those designated as worshipers and lifted up praise to God as their enemy was destroyed by the hand of God. You know, it's, it's really astonishing that they would not link in their minds the worship of the great I Am and the revelation of His existence through His saving power. They correctly focused at the time of need on the one true God. At the time of need. It brought them, it brought the reality of God into perspective. They were able to suppress that seed of, re, of a rebellion, that residue of idolatry that quietly stood momentarily unused on the hill surrounding their nation. 
the high places, the pagan altars, the groves of pagan goddesses, the pagan goddess Ashtoreth. It was at the time of Ni when they understood intellectually that we need something real. They turned to God. The people recognized the truth of the reality of God, and yet they retained within them, within themselves, the capacity for spiritual duplicity. Verse 33 is an indictment, really, against God's people. They held on to that residual element of idolatry in spite of the miraculous demonstration of God's power on their behalf. How be it? How be it, however, the high places were not taken away. When they did this, by not removing those high places, without cutting down those groves, those trees that were used in the worship of this false goddess, they were expressing their subtle appraisal of God and proclaiming him to be insufficient or easily replaced. Second Kings chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 says this, In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash began to reign, and forty years reigned he in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba, And Jehoash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all his days, wherein Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. But the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. It's simply a repetition of of what was happening or what happened earlier in Jehoshaphat's reign. 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 4 through 6 says, And Jehoaz besought the Lord, and the Lord hearkened unto him, for he saw the oppression of Israel. Again, there was a need, because uh, the king of Syria oppressed them. Verse 5 says, And the Lord gave Israel a savior, so that they went out from under the hand of the Syrians. And the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before times. Verse 6, Nevertheless, They departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel sin, but walked therein, and there remained the grove also in Samaria. 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, Amaziah rules in Judah. And verse 1 says, Amaziah, son of Joash, began to rule over Judah in the second year, the reign of King Jehoash of Israel. Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother was Jehoiadan from Jerusalem. Amaziah did that which was pleasing in the, in the Lord's sight. He did that which was right, but not like his ancestor David. Instead, he followed the example of his father Joash. Amaziah did not destroy the pagan shrines, and the people still offered sacrifices and burned incense there. There is, really, there's obvious commonality among these scriptures that are depicting the history of Israel and Judah. We see individuals who follow after God. There is the 
favorable move of God on behalf of these nations, and yet there is that enduring presence of that corruption. There is that residue of an old life, a residue of wrongness. The positive attributes of the leaders and the beneficial expression of God's love and power is overshadowed by qualifiers like however and but and nevertheless. The high places, altars, and the groves that remained in Israel and Judah were the residue of the idolatry of their past, a residual element of a time prior to their reintroduction to relationship with God. Those residual elements may have stood unused at times, but the reality is this, they shouldn't have stood at all. They should never have remained part of the landscape of Israel or Judah. They represented a tether to their past, a secondary, old, familiar love, a barrier to unobstructed devotion to God. If we are to have a vibrant relationship with Jesus, if we are to exist in the center of his will, we must divest ourselves of any influencers that risks contaminating our connection to Christ. There is an expectation by God within his word that we actively purge ourselves of any residual influences. Read this in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. This is beautiful promises that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not beloved. Now are we the sons of God, and it doth not appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. We view a beautiful promise of connection in the scripture, but it comes with the intendant admonishment to purify ourselves, to remove any residue or remnant of, of ungodly things or simply of our old lives. Now, a grim example of the necessity of this is found in 2 Kings chapter 18. We're familiar with this story of the contest between Elijah and the false prophets of Baal. We love this story. The priests of that lifeless idol were tasked with fabricating the miraculous. They fabricated a god, a god. Now they were tasked with fabricating something miraculous. And they failed in spectacular fashion. They stood exhausted, watching in muted, dejected silence as the true prophet of the only true God spoke these words into the vacuum left by the failure of the opponents of God. Verse 36 says in, in chapter 18, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart 
back again. Then fire fell. It consumed the sacrifice, the wood, and the water. The story, however, doesn't end where we normally close our Bibles and stop reading. There's more to the story because because there was still a residue that remained. There remained the idea, the mentality, that if not dealt with would reemerge and rekindle rebellion. Verse 40 says this, And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. And there, before, there was the sound of the abundance of rain. An old idea had to die. In between the miracle of the sacrifice and the miracle of the storm cloud, a residue had to be expunged. It had to be removed. It had to be torn down. I believe we are always standing, honestly, on the precipice of great things in God. It may be some distance down the road for us, but I, I think that we are expected to move forward, move toward the mark or the high calling of Christ. And we are meant to move forward unencumbered by those things that may have remained with us as a residue. It could be a number of things that we quietly hold on to. It could be some residual jealousy or some resentment. It could be lingering pain from abuse or betrayal that sits in the deep recesses of our mind, acting as a tether to our old lives. It could be ambitions that run against the current of what we know to be God's will for our lives. It could be an unhealthy relationship or perhaps it's just an unhealthy affinity for this world. Those groves and those ancient nations of Judah and Israel went from a residue to a distraction and from a distraction to an infection and from an infection to a cultural cancer that raced through the nation of Israel. It destroyed the bond between God and man and could have been prevented, but it persisted and it started really as a residue. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through chapter 7, verse 1 says this, Be, we know this scripture, Be ye not equally yoked together. I'm closing. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, and God hath said, I will dwell in them, and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Almighty, the Lord Almighty. Verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1 says, As having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God.
This relationship we have with God is gifted to us by God. It cost our Savior blood, cost Him pain and humiliation. I think the least that we could do is hold it as the treasure it is and endeavor to remove whatever residue of our old life that may try to persist, that might try to persist. God bless you. I pray the hand of God remain in your life and that you find strength and power and peace in Him. God bless you. Thank you.